we will be reading this morning again from Matthew chapter 5. We will be reading the Beatitudes again from verses 3 through 12. And this morning we will be focusing on verse 9. And he opened, oops. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alice. I think I have some high schoolers that are never going to speak to me again. <laughs> Actually, it was David's idea. He, uh, he didn't want me to tell you that, but that was David's idea. He's gone, so he can't tell if that's true or not, but it was his idea. Well, I'm glad to be going through the Beatitudes with you. I don't know about you, but they've been really challenging to me, but also encouraging because they're not a checklist of to do things to get into the kingdom, but they are those attributes that are to be of all those who are already in God's kingdom. And they're not eight different types of people, eight different attributes, eight different types of people. No, these are all applied to every gospel kingdom citizen, all these beatitudes, which is encouraging, but also then challenging too, aren't they? They're very soul-searching. They're very, uh, uh, I think every week I come to one of these, and this tends to be the case when I preach a passage, whenever it shows a, talks about a certain sin or a certain shortcoming, you know, it always shows up in my life that week. I don't know how that happens to work, but it just does. I go, oh, there it is, Lord. Okay, this is for me too this week. Well, Wednesday morning is usually my study day. It's when I set aside one day a week where I really try not to do anything else. I set aside the entire day to study the passage that we're going through to um, really uh, uh, try to understand it and just set aside that entire day well, this week it, was, it is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, Wednesday, I woke and opened the news that morning, as probably some of you did, and saw the shootings by the 17-year-old boy in Kenosha, the riots in the aftermath of the police shooting, and I just kind of sunk. This morning, it was the murder in Portland last night. So much violence going on right now, everywhere, and especially in our cities right now. And the question I began to ask myself uh, this week is, how do I preach on blessed are the peacemakers? How do I make the message not sound trite? 
with so much violence going on. And then I thought, well, Lord, you know what? You know the weeks, you know the timing, you know the schedule, you are sovereign, and maybe this is the exact message we need this week. Maybe in your life you have, and maybe even recently with all the tension and things going on, maybe you have felt the urge to lash out. Maybe you felt violent impulses yourself or felt grief at just seeing so much blood shed on the streets of, of our city, uh, the streets in our cities, which we should. We should feel grief. I know I felt some weird feelings this week again, just watching image bearers of God wound, maim, kill and destroy. There's video after video. I mean, you really can't do anything now without uh, a camera on you. That's just the world we live in. My conclusion after all these thoughts running through my mind this week was, again, this is the message we need. This is the message God had for, has for us today. Blessed are the peacemakers. So how do you get peace? And what type of peace is Jesus talking about? And what does it mean then if you have this peace to be a peacemaker? Those are the questions we're going to answer today. You know, on the one hand, you have some who say, you know, just peacemaker, we're passive, quiet, avoid all conflict. Let's get peace at any cost. In some places, throwing out convictions and doctrines and truth that tend to rile up. If it brings us peace at any cost. Well, on the other side, the other hand, there are some who say, we get peace by blowing away our enemy, wasting our enemies, destroying them, carrying the biggest stick. That's how we get peace. The problem with both of those views is that it assumes that peace is something that we do, something we can accomplish on our own with our might, strength, passivity, or strength, accomplish their own efforts. Well, Jesus gives us a better way we're going to see today, a better way Actually, the only way to true peace. He doesn't violently force peace with his swagger, with his strength, but he also doesn't passively sit on the sidelines. He doesn't go either of those two uh, routes. And he calls his disciples to follow his path. And when we do, he calls this blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers. A peacemaker is not someone who is passive avoids all conflict, or is after this superficial peace at any cost. A peacemaker is one who actively pursues the peace that only God can bring through the gospel, seeking opportunities of reconciliation from the interpersonal all the way up to institutional, big peace between big groups. So this morning we're going to look at three keys to peace that come from our short little verse. Hopefully you got your outline there. You got your scripture open. We're going to turn to another passage today too. I think it's Ephesians, so maybe you want to bookmark that. As we look at our first key to help us understand what true peace actually is, here's what our first key is. True peace is found when the enmity, enmity that humanity has for God is acknowledged and reconciled. True peace is found when the enmity that humanity has for God is acknowledged and reconciled. I know you remember how all the Beatitudes, all the Beatitudes, they build upon themselves. They're building blocks. And last week we looked at, remember, the pure of heart. The pure of heart was this undivided heart. A heart that was 
totally resolute and single-minded in pursuit of, of God, a heart that has been redeemed, a heart that's honest with itself, acknowledges the sin problem to be dealt with in the heart that resides there. It was, a, do you remember, a new nature, not just a nice person. Remember that from last week? Nice people, new people. Nice people, new people. It's a new heart, a new person. And then a new heart then that goes on this war path, a good kind of war, looking for the idols of the heart, seeking them out, and ditching them, destroying them, getting rid of them to make way for genuine love for God. That's a, that was the pure of heart. It's a heart that has experienced peace with God and so has been given a new purpose in life now. The pure of heart has a new purpose, which is making peace. Pursuing this peace for yourself and for others. All. Here's where we have to camp here for just a few minutes. Because ultimately, when we, what we have in this first point here, this first point is not only the root of our problem as humanity. Here's the root of our problem with humanity. We are at war with God. That's our problem. On a, on a vertical level, we're at war with God on a vertical plane. But all the violence, all the unrest, all the strife we see on a horizontal plane between humanity and others and nations and groups and political parties, all that violence we see on a horizontal plane is really ultimately just a symptom of the greater problem here on a vertical plane. Humanity's war against God. That's the big problem. So we have to camp here for just a minute because it's the root of all the symptoms we see on this level. And this is something as we talk about it, that even as Christians, we don't like to hear. Nobody likes to hear this, that even as Christians remaining in our heart, even after we come to trust Jesus, is a residual enmity. I would even say sometimes a hostility towards God. Yes, we have a new heart. We also still live in the flesh and we have a war we're waging, as Paul said. We read it in Romans 7, I think, last week. There is a war waging on the turf of your heart, that means. It's being played out daily and moment by moment. Listen to some of the verses to help us understand the depths of hostility and the root of violence and strife in this world. Colossians 1.21, I think Kirk read, Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds. Enemies because of your evil behavior. We are born into a natural, we're, we're, we're born into a war that's already going on and already has been going on since the garden. It's where we're dropped. It's where we're placed and we've got it living inside of us. Our natural state is alienated from God. Colossians, Paul writes, he even says, enemies of God in our mind. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, Paul says it can't actually. That kind of mind, without that intervention, without the pure heart, without the work of the Spirit, cannot even submit to God. And so we can't even begin to understand, really, the problems of the world unless we see the world with New Testament eyes. See humanity with New Testament eyes. We don't just have a little problem with God. It's a big problem. 
Paul wrote in these verses. It's hostility to God. Well, you're not quite sure. You're like, okay, well, really? Is that, that's kind of strong language. Hostility to God, enemies of God, hatred of God even? Well, here's the biggest proof for it. When God decided to come close to us, close in to us in Jesus Christ to, to love, to show us God, to teach us, to redeem us, when he came close to us, what did we do with him? When we finally got our grubby little hands on him, what do we do? We killed him. We killed him. He comes close to him, we kill him. That's our proof. That is our proof. There it is. He came to our turf, and we wasted him. Enmity. War against God. Alienated, the verses say. Enemies. Hostile in our minds. Rebellious. It's been the problem since the garden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's rightful rule over them. And to have peace with God then, which we're going to talk about in a minute, you have to start here. You have to acknowledge that you don't have it. And that's really the role even in evangelism as we share our faith is really getting people to see that they're living in an active rebellion against God. You're at war with God. And the challenge is, though, that most people, Christians included, don't see themselves as hostile to God. You might hear the words and you might say, well, you know, maybe that's you, but I'm not hostile to God. I have nothing against him. Or someone might even say, you know, as, a, as an agnostic or an atheist, I'm, a, I'm actually indifferent to God. I'm indifferent. Really? Really? Remember, the heart. We've been talking about the heart. What was it? It was the seat, the center of the, the, the mind or intellect and will and emotions. Remember that from the pure in heart? The mind is, the, or the heart is the seat of all of those. The causal core of all those things. The mind, the will, and the emotions. Let's take a look at those three and just think of this idea of hostility to God. See how we would respond. Probably the mind, the first one. But the mind. There are things in God's wor word that there has probably been times in your life that you just don't like what you read. Have you been there? How many of you have wrestled with the way God reveals himself in the Bible? This is the first one. Just, just to test ourselves if there's some hostility. I mean, that's all of us have at one time or another read something in the Bible and go, really? This is the God of the Bible? Maybe for you it was how he judges sin and did so sometimes immediately in the Old Testament. Maybe for you it's been the reality of hell. That the judged will be in a conscious state of eternal punishment. How about the fact that Jesus is the one who talks about hell more than anyone in the entire Bible? Maybe for you it's the fact that the Bible speaks of this strange concept of, of predestination. Maybe that's for you. Saving and elect people. Maybe for you it's his call to suffer. Really suffer? Pick up my cross and follow you? Maybe for you it's been the Beatitudes. Really? The Beatitudes. This is, this, is the, this is the way you want? This is who you want, Jesus? This is who I'm to be? We struggle with the mind, even, with some hostility, even in the way God reveals himself in his word. How about your will? 
Let's talk about that one. Every time we sin, every time we sin, whether we consciously acknowledge it or not, we're saying to God, yes, 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 I know, I know what you say. I know that you say this is good for me, but I just don't believe it in this moment. I have to have this, whatever that thing is. Now my, my will wants this. This is good for me. And we act in ways against God and excuse ourselves in ways that we would never allow our friends and family to get away with us, don't we? Our will, too, shows direct hostility towards God sometimes. All right, how about our emotions? The last one. This is the clearest for me, I guess, as I personally just reveal to you. My will. How cold I can be sometimes towards God. You know, we just had a friend that gave, a family friend that gave us a wonderful gift this week. Just a wonderful, thoughtful gift. And when someone does something like that for you, you've been given a, a nice gift before. When someone does something like that for you, doesn't it kind of just warm you inside towards the person? It, it softens your heart towards them as they've given you this wonderful gift. But when things go wrong in life, that is when my enmity towards God tends to slip through the cracks of my heart the most. So rather than, when things go wrong in my life, rather than looking at Jesus, seeing what he's done for me, seeing the wonderful gift he's giving me, and letting that be a salve on my disappointments, I say, where are you, God? You didn't come through for me. How could you let this happen to me? I've served you so faithfully. I don't deserve this, God. Enmity towards God comes out most when life is out of our control, or at least for me. It's a natural state we're born in. And even with a new heart, we wrestle still this ongoing hostility until one day it will be finally removed. So how do we find this true peace? If we're all born into this, and you're like, oh, wow, enough of this bad news already. Like, this hostility, enough. How do we find this true peace? Well, go back to the first key there in your outline. We acknowledge the enmity. We got a camp there, like I said, and we become reconciled to God. This is the message of the gospel. Uh, Kirk uh, highlighted it, this idea of reconciliation. Being reconciled to God. It was a rescue mission of Jesus to make peace on earth. Ephesians 2, if you got it, turn there. It's the classic passage on one of the classic passages on reconciliation and peace with God. Ephesians 2.14. Turn there if you got your Bible. Ephesians 2.14-19 speak of how we get this peace. How does it happen? Ephesians 2.14-19. I'll read it. Follow along if you got it or just listen if you don't. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, that's Jew and Gentile, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. I love this passage because it not only speaks to that uh, vertical peace we need with God, the hostility, peace through the cross, but it also speaks of the horizontal racial peace we need. He was even speaking of Jew and Gentile and the racial tension they had. Peace between humanity. It speaks on a, a horizontal level as well. That's why I love this passage so much. The one is connected to the other. Peace with God promotes and pushes us out to become peacemakers ourselves. That's the primary theme of this passage in Ephesians 2. And you will not have true peace in your life until you find peace through the cross, Paul writes here. Jesus faced the violence of the cross and the violence of God's wrath so you could find reconciliation to God. To do away with that sin that caused so much enmity. He had to do it. Paul writes in Ephesians, remove the dividing wall of hostility. All this violence right now, even in our backyard in Portland, all these efforts to manipulate peace. Ultimately, only when you go about it this way, you can only bring peace through an exertion of force without the true peace, an exertion of violence, it seems to be, what's happening on our streets. I mean, think about it. People being shot, punched, kicked, maimed, all in the name of peace? superficial manipulation to try to get something that only God can bring. And don't get me wrong here. There are legitimate efforts outside of the gospel to bring a type of peace. Governments are called to keep peace. Law enforcement's called to keep peace. We legislate to try to keep peace. I mean, really, that's the, the goal of all these things. And they're all God-ordained efforts at peace, particular government. It's God-ordained, and they're, they're good in and of themselves. But they will never bring ultimate peace. We have to say that and know that as Christians. They will never bring ultimate peace. Kingdom of God-type peace now. And so we shouldn't put, then, our ultimate hope in these things. They, some of them are good and God-ordained. But as a Christian, your truest desire for peace in the world has to be acknowledged, will never come through a political party, will never come through a president, it'll never come through laws, it'll never come through law enforcement. Like I said, don't get me wrong, these are God-ordained and good things, but they are only band-aids. Humanity needs a heart revolution. Band-aids, given to us by God, hopefully to create a somewhat hospitable environment so we can take the gospel forward, and push it out and get real peace out there to the enemies of God. But that's the only type of true peace that will ever transform from the inside out. Everything else is an external manipulation. Do you get that? Does that make sense? So then if we have been brought into God's kingdom, if you've been reconciled to God, what does it mean to be then now on this mission as a peace peacemaker. What does that mean? Let's look at the key number two. 
Peacemakers are this. Peacemakers actively pursue peace and reconciliation because they've been reconciled to God. There's the connection to the gospel. We actively pursue peace because we have been given peace. It's Paul, think of Paul's words, forgive as you've been forgiven. Well, here it means pursue peace as you've been given peace, as you've been reconciled. When you realize that you've actually been reconciled towards God through the peacemaker Jesus, and he's become your king, and you've become a citizen of his kingdom, you want others to have this peace too. You become a peacemaker. As Christians, we struggle with this. I think for a couple reasons. One is because I think many times as Christians, we've exchanged love, being loving, with niceness. Or exchanged peacemaking with passivity. As if those were what those mean, that, that means. Peacemaking, oh, just be passive and stay out of it. Uh, love, just be nice. No, it's so much richer and so much more than that. As we're going to see next week, actually, you know what happens to peacemakers? What happens? What's the end? Where are the end of the Beatitudes? What happens to peacemakers? They get persecuted. Because the message of peace between God and man is not very popular. To be told you're an enemy of God and there's only one way to be reconciled to him, peacemakers will inevitably get persecution. Sometimes we'd rather say, uh, we'd rather someone say, I, I do. Someone say we're nice rather than ruffle feathers with the exclusivity of the gospel message. But Jesus wasn't passive. Jesus, Jesus actively waged, you could even say a war, against sin. And he actually stirred up a lot of discord, didn't he, before peace ever came. Remember, we talked about the nice person versus the new last week. Well, a nice person passively hopes for peace. A new person actively seeks it out initiates. And so we began kind of with a theoretical today uh, in, in point one, this idea of uh, uh, the doctrinal reconciliation. So I want to talk and make sure we hit some really practical, what does this look like then? How does the gospel connect to actual peacemaking now? How does the reconciliation we have with God internally make us able to be peacemakers. We're going to go through these quick in number two, these subpoints. Here's the first one. Peacemakers have a new view of their self, others, and the world. A new view of self, others, and the world. The gospel delivers us from self-centeredness. It, it, it humbles us by showing us our warlike mentality we had with God. But then, how much we are loved in light of that in his great mercy. Uh, the, the, the person who's come to have this new view of, of self and other and God knows that in your natural self, you have deserved the sword of God to come upon down upon your rebellious neck, and yet you've received the kiss of mercy. That's the new heart. And so we have a new view of self because of that. You know who you are. You're honest with yourself deep down, and yet you know the great mercy you've received from God. 
we don't think less of ourselves necessarily, but we're image bearers, but we think of ourselves less. And so we don't go into every interaction, every conversation, every interaction with people thinking, how's this going to affect me? How am I going to come out of this? How am I going to be portrayed in this? And in what light will I be shown? Is this fair to me? What should I uh, assert in this conversation? How will this serve me? No, no, no. When we think like that, we enter conversations to war, to win. How am I going to come out of this? To stand amongst the rubble as a survivor. That's the attitude that leads to quarrels, to misunderstanding and, and, and fighting. No, we know. I don't deserve anything I've gotten. I don't deserve it. It's all of grace. No claim on rights and privileges. I, I, it's all been given to me as a free gift of God. So you have a new view of self as you go into conflict. How about a new view of others? When you know that grace, of the grace of God has transformed you or transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you view others with a concern, with a pity when you see what's happened to you. So rather than scoffing at others or cynically dismissing those who cause trouble, you look with pity. I like how Martin Lloyd-Jones, we've been quoting him a couple times throughout this series because he's got an amazing book on the Beatitudes. He said, the peacemaker is the man or woman who does not talk about people when they are offensive or difficult. He does not ask, why are they like that? He says and knows they're like that because they're still being governed by the God of this world, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, quoting scripture. He goes on, that poor person is a victim of self and Satan. He is hellbound. I must have pity and mercy upon him. The moment he begins to look at him like that, he's in a position to help him. And he's likely to make peace with him. It's a different way to view others. When you've been saved by grace alone, and you realize all is a gift, you see others. When you realize you've been transferred out of that kingdom of darkness, something you didn't accomplish, something God did for you, you realize those you are in conflict with mostly, might be still in that kingdom of darkness, held bondage to it. Remember from last week, nice people say, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. New people say, no, 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 look, no, we're the renewed, they're the not yet renewed. That's what the new person says. Rather than good, bad, dividing everybody into those two camps, a better way is renewed and not yet renewed. It's a new view of others. The, that kind of person assumes the best about others until it's proven otherwise. Instead of uh, assigning moral motives to things that we never could under really know if there's a moral motive behind it. How about the world? New view of self, others, world. Uh, the person who's had peace between God knows when we look at the micro battles, the micro battles in the world, riots in the streets, Antifa, quarrels between nations or on a smaller level, quarrels between family members, broken friendships, quarrels in churches, we know they're just a microcosm of what's happening in the larger universe, really. The larger world. What's that? A great spiritual war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And so 
when we pick, take these microcosms and place them into the larger context and history of God working in the world, we don't have to place all our hopes on one election. We don't have to place all our hopes on one party, one nation either, either one leader. We don't have to place all our hopes on one relationship or one job, one victory, one loss. When you know the ultimate battle has been won already, it puts those smaller battles into proper perspective. The ultimate war has already been won for you. These other little skirmishes are just a symptom of the larger battle that's already been won. How do we know it's been won? Pretty simple. Christ has been resurrected. Christ has been resurrected. He lives now. He breathes now. He sits at the right hand of God now, making intercession for you. So we don't have to get paranoid, hysterical, cynical, alarmist. We know the battle's been won. Yes, be wise, informed, and engaged, but have a proper view of the world as a peacemaker. Here's our next one. We've got a proper view of self, others, and the world. A peacemaker is slow to speak and quick to hear. You've probably heard that verse before from James. This kind of just goes with the new view of self, really. You know, sometimes I just need to shut up and listen. (laughs) I know that. I know that about myself. Pastors like to talk. That's That's what they were gifted to do. Sometimes I just need to listen. My thoughts and opinion don't have to be known on every subject. Tell that to our social media feeds, right? (laughs) The peacemaker is the one, as the Beatitude tells us, Beatitudes tells us, has gone through this process. Poverty of spirit, mourning, and meekness. And so they realize that I'm just one voice. I'm just one opinion. In any dispute, I'm just one voice. And one of the best ways to keep peace is to learn not to speak. To learn not to speak. It's the beauty of silence. Read the book of James later today. Or this week, if you, if you want to see this, read the book of James later. This is where this, our point comes from, James 1.19. But he also speaks of the tongue, you remember that in the book? As like a fire. And set a whole forest ablaze. Or a rudder. It's so tiny that it can turn an t- entire ship. He says the tongue is like that. But he also speaks in James of the wisdom from above that causes us to desire that de- or that causes us to pursue peace. But he also speaks of the desires in our own heart that cause quarrels and fighting amongst you. James is a great book to read if you want to think about peace. Slow to speak, but also here's another one as you think about our talk and our speech. Slow to share news as well. So slow to respond immediately, quick to to listen, but also slow to share news. If someone says something bad about someone, here's what I would say to do. I mean, unless it's really something that has to be reconciled and dealt with, it's not very helpful just to go along and share and say, hey, do you know what so-and-so said about you? Let me tell you. Let me tell you. That's only going to hurt them. In our community in particular, this is where we're most focused, our church in particular, sharing something that you hear about someone that's not going to really bring about something positive 
the Bible calls gossip. And you know what it does? Here's what it does. For one brief moment, it gives you and that person you're sharing the news with a false sense of intimacy, doesn't it? For that one moment, you feel really close. You know what happened? Let me tell you what happened. And so-and-so said about you. What? What'd they say? You know, for that one moment, you have this false sense of intimacy with the person you're sharing with. But you know as soon as it's over and you kind of both walk away from the conversation, you ever felt more empty after it? That's what that kind of talk does to us. It promises us intimacy with someone, and yet it pulls the rug out from under us when we walk away from the conversation, and you leave feeling more empty because you didn't really share anything that's life-giving. These are important. These are, these, are, these are great lessons for us as we think about peacemaking. Here's another way to put it. Uh, if a peacemaker has a problem with somebody, they talk to them rather than about them. They talk to the person rather than about them. Well, here's our next one. Let's go to the next one. So from speech now to our third one under this peacemaker, how do we do it? The peacemaker runs everything through a gospel filter. Everything through a gospel filter. What do I mean by that? Well, now that the peacemaker is freed from thinking only of self, has a new view of the world and others, a new mission to bring God's glory through Jesus, they begin to run every quarrel, every disagreement, decisions in life through a gospel filter, which means you need to build up in your life a gospel filter. Okay, that's great, but what does that mean? A gospel filter. Before speaking or acting or even as you're thinking, you must ask yourself, how will this impact the gospel work here? How will this conversation impact the name of Jesus or his reputation in our church or community? How will this, there's another way to put it, how will this impact the church? Local, Bethany, city can be universal. How will this impact my witness for Jesus? What will this do to the gospel cause? What will this do to Bethany Church's gospel cause? That's the filter that the peacemaker runs everything through in life. How will this decision impact Jesus' name? Jesus' mission. I know I've hit on this a couple times, but I mean, and it's right to do, I think, in this context. I put it in your worship folder today, something from our covenant membership class. One of the primary points and reasons for covenant membership is Bethany, Bethany, at Bethany Church. Here it is. It's putting a sense, or putting aside, excuse me, your sense of individuality. Not that it's wrong to be an individual, but in our church life, Covenant membership is there for us to put aside our sense of individuality and to run everything through a gospel filter, filter of mutual accountability. That's why we do it. That's why we talk about covenant membership. That's why we ask you to go to a class and, and pursue it. It's, it's a way for us as a church. It's just a tool. It's just a tool to help us put aside that inner desire for individuality and come under mutual accountability. Does that make sense? That's why I talk about it a lot. That's why we do it. It's getting a bitter, bigger picture of yourself. 
And if you haven't considered it, next time we offer a covenant membership class and you have any interest in this or Bethany Church and the gospel and how we want to run everything through a gospel filter, come check it out. In fact, in your worship folder today, you notice it was probably thick, huh? We put a lot of paper in there today. But I thought it was so important. Take a look real quick at the final page. In our covenant membership stuff, we have three relational commitments, we call them, under our, our covenant that we covenant together to be as a body. One of them is, hey, look at that, a, a, a commitment to peacemaking and reconciliation. What's the verse there? You see it, Matthew 5, 9. I mean, this is so important to us. It's one of our only three. We have three relational commitments in our covenant, and one of them is this, peacekeeping and, and reconciliation. It's a bigger picture than just us, isn't it? We run conflict through a gospel filter. Read that later today. It's in there so you take home. Read it later today. Uh, If you're online, we'll put it in our email this week again so you can get it. Here's our third out of four, and then we're wrapping after that. Here's the next one. Peacemakers take the initiative. They take the initiative. Remember, a peacemaker is not someone who's passive. A peacemaker is not even just a peace lover. You know, out of the 60s. You know, the the mantras, it was just love, peace, 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 peace. It's not just a peace lover. It's not even a peacekeeper. It's more than that. It's a peacemaker, Jesus says. Did you see the word there? A peacemaker. A peacemaker goes out of his or her way to move towards people. What's my temptation when I have a little conflict or a little, ooh, kind of weird feeling between a conversation I have with somebody? Or I feel, did they mean to slight me like that? What's my temptation? It's to move away from them. And I know it's your temptation too. The natural heart, our natural temptation is to move away from people when they hurt us. Whether that's stop answering text or going silent for a while or sometimes being actively outright hostile. Our natural temptation is to move away. What did we see Jesus doing? Always moving towards. Maybe you say, this person's wronged me. You know, I've taken the initial steps. But they aren't. the initial steps alone aren't good enough. And th- what were those? I haven't said anything wrong about them. Uh, I have pity. I know maybe that they're caught in a moment of sin. I'll pray for them. Those are all good. But a peacemaker goes beyond those. A peacemaker goes beyond those. Remember, what did Jesus say? Feed your enemy even, he said. Give them water. You you can't do that unless you go towards somebody. Here's what that means then. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, and there is anyone in your life, or our congregation you would say, who you harbor bitterness against, you should must go towards them. It might be little steps, but you must move towards them rather than away from them. A peacemaker goes to them. Do everything you can actively to make peace, which means our final one under point two. A peacemaker always has a select few people they are moving towards. A peacemaker has always got a few on on the front burner, not the back, the front burner that they're moving towards. Take a moment, I want you to do this. If you've got a pen or you don't, think about it in your mind. Take a moment 
of silence. And I want you just to think of who are those few people for you that you need to be moving towards a bit more. Maybe it's somebody you want to share the gospel with. Maybe there's some relational strife. Maybe it's somebody at work. Just think for a moment. I want everybody to come up with just a few names. Here's why we know we need to do this. Christ moved towards us. Think about it. Christ took the initiative. Christ came to earth. If anyone could have ever just sat back and said, see those fools, see, they've declared war against me. I won't listen. I won't go. I won't show concern. I won't condescend to their level. But he did condescend, didn't he? He did come to our level. He did take the initiative to make peace by adopting us. He did do it. He didn't have to do it, but he did do it. He, he could have clutched at all his rights, all his privileges, came to earth and just demanded with his voice. But no, what did he do? He lived out of his sonship for his father. It's our final key, and we're going to actually stop here today. I'll give it to you, and then we're going to stop. Living out our, our adoption as children of God gives us the power to pursue peace and face persecution. We're going to end here this morning because we're going to start here next week with this point. To be a peacemaker is to spread, to speak out of sonship, adoption, like our big brother Jesus. And as he created waves on earth, if we are speaking true peace, so will we. Take that home this week. I'm going to wrestle with it too. Are you a, enough of a peacekeeper in the world that you find yourself creating waves around you? I was challenged by that this week. That if you are following of Christ, persecution will be inevitable. We'll begin there next week where we end today. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these Beatitudes. What a concentrated picture of who you want us to be. But here's the good news. Here's our peace, Jesus, to know that if you've redeemed us, you will do these things on us, in us, on us and in us. Your will will work in us and through us. And so, Lord Jesus, we know today and we speak with confidence today knowing that he who began a good work in us, it will complete it. You will complete it. You'll be faithful to complete it. And so, God, we find hope in knowing that you will make us peacemakers. You will grow us in this mission of peacekeeping and peacemaking. And so we ask you to do that and bring to our heart and mind today this fresh sense of the reconciliation we have with God Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who condescended, who initiated, who came towards us rather than moved away. And make us into those type of people, we pray. In Christ's name.